the Gospel of John, and we're going to continue uh, with chapter 17 this week. Finished chapter 16 last week, so we're going to be moving into chapter 17. And um, looking forward to this study and, and uh, as we continue on with it next week, just because of where we are in our text, it's, it's, a, it's a transition period, if you will, because we have been studying now for several months this interaction between Jesus and the disciples as we approach uh, Jesus going to the cross, his trial and crucifixion and his arrest. And so uh, this is a really unique time in the passage that we're in because it's between all this time that Jesus has been teaching and encouraging the disciples, trying to better prepare them for what's about to take place, and the actual arrest and trial and crucifixion itself. And this is Jesus' prayer in between. Now this is the Lord's Prayer. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. We, uh, it's not the one that's found in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 that is traditionally entitled the Lord's Prayer. Uh, its content, its focus in that prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 is it's just not something that the Lord Jesus himself would pray. And as we look through the Lord's Prayer, as you have opportunity to study that uh, either on your own or in the past, what you've learned from that, uh, you would see right away that it's, it's not something that the Lord Jesus himself would pray if based on nothing else, his statement, forgive us our trespasses, right? Because he never sinned, he never trespassed. So that's not something that he himself would pray. Rather, it's a prayer for uh, the disciples. You see, after spending time with Jesus, seeing firsthand all of the things that he had done, all of the things that he taught, uh, the relationship that he had with the Father, one of the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. They knew that John the Baptist had done that very thing, and we see that in, in uh, Luke's account, that teaches to pray like John taught his disciples. And so Jesus responded, depending upon the translation you have, he said, when you pray, say, or when you pray, pray in this manner. So we know that it was the disciples that were asking. It's the disciples that he's talking to there. So this should be termed the disciples' prayer, if you will. If you wanted to keep them straight, look at that as the disciples' prayer and the true Lord's prayer we would find here in John chapter 17. So that the disciples' prayer was an outline or a template for them basically to, for what was to be contained in their prayers when they come to the Father. But what we're looking at this morning is what we could uh, call the real Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus has given us the privilege of sitting in on or listening in on His prayer to the Father, this real Lord's Prayer. And what a unique opportunity it is that we have to have this documented for us that we can read it, study it, comprehend it, see all the things that Jesus is saying in it and how that uh, affects us. So we have this picture, this time frame that we get to look into where he has intimate time of fellowship with the Father. We know that throughout the Gospels, we see many, many times that Jesus went off 
to a solitary place to pray to the Father. This is an opportunity that we have to see that interaction that's actually going on between Him and the Father. So, this Lord's Prayer. As we study this prayer, we will see that Jesus prays about and for Himself. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these things down just to try to get uh, a better feel on what's going on here. So Jesus prays about and for Himself. Basically, Father, what you and I have done together. Jesus prays about and for His disciples in this prayer. Father, what you and I have done in these men and what we will do in these men. And Jesus prays about and for us. Father, what you and I will do in those who will believe through them, through the ministry that they're called to. So it's all of that is contained in this one little chapter. Jesus praying for and about himself, Jesus praying about and for the disciples, and Jesus praying about and for us as well. And so I want us to take a look at this this morning in a sort of a different way because there's a lot that's being said throughout the whole chapter based upon what Jesus has done and what he's going to do and who he is. And so I want us to focus on that first. And then next week, we're going to look at how that worked out in the lives of the apostles and also how it works out in our lives as well today. So in this prayer to the Father, Jesus is basically giving, if you will, his spiritual resume. That's what we're going to be looking at. The resume that Jesus has accomplished the things that he's done, and he's presenting these things to the Father. Now, we know the Father already knows them, right? But he's doing a summary or a recap, if you will, of what his ministry's been all about. And I don't in any way want us to forget about the love and the intimacy that's going on here between the Son and the Father. And this is, without a doubt, the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. And it's the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture because of who is praying it and the content of that prayer. So starting with verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son also may glorify You as You have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So first of all, note the posture in this prayer. What is it? He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now it's interesting how we tend to always do what? Uh, bow our heads, close our eyes, fold our hands, uh, kneel down, all the different postures that we have uh, in our physical bodies, if you will, as we approach the attitude of prayer. None of which are, are wrong. Uh, some of them may have been handed down by your parents. You know, uh, I don't know how many of you, my parents used to have me kneel beside the bed, bow my head, close my eyes, and fold my hands. And it was like, looking back on it, it's like, man, I, well, I had it all covered, didn't I? <laughs> had it all the bases covered in that, doing all of those things and saying the, now I lay me down to sleep prayer that we all know, which is just a bizarre prayer, if you think about it. It's kind of scary, isn't it? You know, it's just a scary prayer. 
I pray the Lord my soul to take. You know, I mean, it's just kind of spooky. It's accurate. <laughs> and I'm sure at a young age, God certainly accepts that prayer from us. But it's interesting that over time that we have adapted, and even here, you know, when we pray at the end of the teaching, a lot of times I tell you to, you know, bow your head and close your eyes. And why is that? The, the posture itself is not as important as the posture of our hearts, right? But yet, if that allows us to connect, communicate with the Lord without distraction, then it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we do that. But we see Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven, focused on the Father, and shares what is on his heart. And you know, I like that. I, I see that and I go, I don't really pray like that, except that when it's one of those emergency things. Help me, Lord! You know, we've all been there, right? But I just like the posture that Jesus has here. Looking up to the Father, communicating with the Father, uh, it, it just, it really speaks to us of the closeness of that relationship, doesn't it? So, Jesus shares what's on his heart. We just need to remember to posture ourselves in whatever way helps to keep us focused on God and to minimize distractions, don't we? For some of us, I know that it's, we, we get up early in the morning and we have that time we can spend with the Lord. For some of us, maybe it's in the middle of the day when we can just break away at work or at school or whatever that is to spend time with the Lord. Whatever it takes for us to have that quality time with the Father, that's the most important thing. But keep in mind here what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus went off to a solitary place, does it? It doesn't indicate at all that he was alone. In fact, if you carry it over from the chapter before, it gives us the indication that what? The disciples are still with him there. And I believe that to be true. I believe it to be true. And I'm going to continue to believe it to be true until, well, we get to heaven and God said, no, that, that wasn't the case. They weren't there. But <laughs> for now, based on what we have, I believe the disciples are still there. So he's been been with the disciples, teaching them all this time. And then the text moves from saying that Jesus spoke these words, what we see first in the, in the first verse there, and lifted up his eyes. So it just seems like a natural progression. He went from saying, be, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, and anything else he may have said that we don't have documented in Scripture, and moved right into this prayer. So, Jesus is focused upon the Father. He's looking up into heaven. And I believe that the disciples probably did as well when he started praying. You guys have been there. You ever pulled that trick on somebody when you're standing somewhere and you're just <laughs> looking at something? What do people do? They, you know, they look too. What is it? What's he looking at? So, naturally... His posture being looking up to the Father, I think the disciples may have gone there as well. So whether alone or in a group, our heart, our posture of our heart is the most important thing, to be focused upon God. There's a story told of three preachers sitting discussing the best positions for prayer. And while they're discussing this, there just happened to be a telephone repairman working nearby. And so the first pastor says, kneeling, kneeling is definitely the best. That's, that's what I like to do, and I think that that's the best way to approach the Father. And another pastor said, no, 
I get the best results standing with my hands outstretched to heaven. I believe that's the best posture to be in when you're praying to the Lord. And the third said, well, you're both wrong. The most effective prayer position is lying prostrate, face down on the floor. I did get that correct because I practiced that. I didn't want to say prostate because that does get confused. I'm to prostrate, <laughs> face down on the floor. And this repairman, hearing all this going on, couldn't contain himself any longer. And he says, hey, fellas, I want you to know the best praying I ever did was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. We can relate to that, don't we? It was an emergency. We, we find ourselves in the same situation sometimes when we're praying out of necessity, out of an emergency situation, and the posture doesn't mean anything. What we're doing with our body, does it? It's what's coming from our heart, what's coming from our minds. So he also says in verse 1 here, Father, the hour has come. Now we've talked at length about this before, verse after verse so far in the Gospel of John that has Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Well, what hour, what time is he referring to? It's the hour, the time that he would pay for your sins and mine when he would go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice for us. Prior to this, it was not his hour or his time. That's why he was saying that. It had not yet come, but now it has. It, it's time. He says, Father, the hour has come. J. Vernon McGee, if you, if you like to listen to his teachings or uh, read any of his commentaries about this, he said, this would be the hour that all of creation would see the love of God displayed as he took your sins and my sins upon himself and died a vicarious, substitutionary, redemptive death for us and then completed the transaction by being raised from the dead. He completed the transaction by being raised from the dead. He's saying, Father, the hour has come. Jesus takes the time after teaching and encouraging his disciples, he takes this time to communicate with the Father within their hearing, saying, Father, the, the time has now come. He had told the disciples, when you pray, pray in this manner. Here it's as if he says, boys, here's how I pray. <laughs> Listen up, watch, let me be an example for you in my communication with the Father. I gave you that template on how to pray, the disciples' prayer, and now I want to hear, let you hear me communicate directly with the Father. And by the way, some of the things that I'm going to say is directly related to your relationship with the Father, guys. So that's why I believe he's still here. So this morning, I want us to look at this prayer as Jesus communicating his spiritual resume to the Father. For what purpose? Of course, for our benefit. This is going to be a summary look, an introduction to this prayer. And again, we're going to go to it more in depth next week. But today we're going to focus on Jesus praying about and for himself. Praying to, communicating with the Father for Jesus was as natural as breathing. His relationship with the Father was such that at any point in time, He could just talk, communicate with the Father because of their relationship. We have that same privilege as well, don't we? It feels different, 
because of the way that we approach the Father. We got into a discussion about this a few weeks ago at our discipleship class on Thursday nights, talking about calling God, the Father, Daddy. And I communicated with them or shared with them, I struggle with that. I know it to be true. He's our Abba Father, right? He is our Daddy in that respect. But it's hard for me to go there, probably because of all the good baggage I brought with me to that place, <laughs> how I grew up, the church that I grew up in. It just didn't seem right. I want you to know it is okay. It is okay. So you approach the Father as He leads you to approach Him. And if, if, if it's in that language, that's fine. No problem. But know that we have access to the Father just as we see Jesus has access to the Father here. Just talk with Him. Communicate with Him. When I see Paul says, pray without ceasing, when I, you know, when I first was uh, introduced to that verse, I thought, oh, goodness, how, how do you do that? You know, there's so many distractions throughout the day. Well, it's just conversing with the Father. Yes, we need those times when we're in a solitary place, alone with the Father, talking with Him, making our prayers and supplications uh, known before Him. But then there's that time during the day when we just we cry out to God. We just say quick prayers like, you know, somebody cuts us off in traffic. Oh, Lord, thanks for protecting me, Lord. That's the first thing that pops into our minds, isn't it? <laughs> Lord, thanks for, yeah, yeah, right. But just communicating with God throughout the whole day, having an awareness of His thereness, being aware that God's there, and we have access to just communicate with him so how many of you here uh, recently have had to submit a resume for one reason or the other or even update your resume uh, I had that privilege about a year and a half ago when I started the church because I was going back to work no longer working at the church in Greeley and so it'd been five years since I had updated my resume and I thought man all the things that I could put on this resume as it relates to what I've learned in the past five years at the church. But as a business resume, you know, uh, I'm afraid I might have lost a few people you know, if I turned that in. But we fill out a resume and there are certain things that are contained in that resume that are very important to communicate who we are, what we do, what we have done, and those kinds of things, right? So... Our resume is simply, really, it's a recap of these things. Who we are, an, int an introduction to ourselves. Basically, that's as simple as what? A name at the top, right? And then what we are looking to do. What is, what is our objective? And many times, we've looked at the job that's posted, and we gear that objective directly to what they're looking for, right? I want to get a job as whatever it is they're looking for. You, you don't put, I, I have no interest in this that you're advertising for, here's what I do. You know, you want to get that job, so you try to, to form that in such a way that you communicate that, that objective. And then what we have done, our background, our experience, our education, that's always contained in a, in a resume, right? And then also, who was there in our past to witness all these wonderful things that we've done? <laughs> our references right? And we always put down a good reference, don't we? 
Have you ever put down, well, I know I'm not going to get a good reference for that person, so I think I'll use them just to kind of balance the whole thing out. We don't do that. We don't want to put a reference down that means <laughs> nothing or shines a bad light on our background, or our experience, so we put good references on there. So that's basically how we put together a spiritual resume. Now, there's no way in resume form that we could capture all that Jesus is or has done or even will do. We know from uh, John chapter 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We wouldn't want to do a resume like that, would we? Walk in, here's my resume, you know, a book that thick. Probably not even going to be read, would be my guess. But for Jesus to try to capture everything he's done just in a resume form uh, is almost ridiculous, which you're probably wondering, then why are you trying to do that this morning? Well, there's method to my madness here. I want us to try to get the summary of everything that's going on in this prayer, what Jesus is saying to the Father, how he's communicating that, the things that he's done for the purpose of establishing us and what it is that we're going to look at next week. So we're going to summarize this. So all resumes start off with who the person is. So at the top of his resume, Jesus declares who it is. It's obvious from verse 1 because we see the Son and the Father. Jesus, the Son of God. Top of the resume. Normally on the line right underneath, we put what? Address, right? So temporary residence, earth, permanent residence, heaven. We could do that as well, couldn't we? Uh, it might freak a few people out when we turn in our resume. I'm just here temporarily, but this is a full-time position. I know that, but I'm just here temporarily. My eternal home's in heaven. So it says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. So we have the start of this spiritual resume of Jesus, who, who he is, the Son of God. Now, the next thing we typically see on the resume is, is the objective, as we talked about, for submitting the resume. For us, it's a position we're applying for. For Jesus, it's the position that he already had. <laughs> That's the difference. So we see the resume, who he is at the top, and then the objectives we see in the first couple of verses to glorify the Father and to give eternal life. Because we see, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should what? Give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. So the objectives are very clear. There's two of them. To glorify the Father, and to give eternal life. And from what we know of Jesus Christ, obviously on this side of the cross, we can look back and go, he did both, right? He fulfilled those two objectives. We know that. So objective one, glorify the Father. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. An example of that is what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So in everything that Jesus did... Everything that Jesus said, He glorified the Father. 
It was his calling. It was his mission. He was sent to earth to glorify the Father. And he did it very well. Now, in all of these things that we're talking about, remember that next week we're going to be looking at the fact that the disciples, that was their calling as well, right? To glorify the Lord. And for us, years and years afterwards, that's still the same objective, to glorify the Lord. He says in verse 2, objective number 2, give eternal life. As you have given Him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. Now, that should make our ears, our eyes perk up, right? We should just right away go, okay, eternal life. Know what eternal life is. But Jesus is saying, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That leads to eternal life, is knowing the one and only true God in Jesus Christ whom He sent. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Believing in Jesus Christ, who He was and what He did. Believing in God, that He sent His Son to die as a sacrifice for us. 1 John Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So that's a pretty straightforward verse, isn't it? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And if you have the Son, you have life. You have eternal life. And who was it given by? Jesus Christ, right? So his objective to give eternal life, he is going to accomplish that starting the next day, right? Starting with his trial and crucifixion and then his resurrection. He will complete this second objective really in just a few hours from the time of this prayer. He'll die on the cross for all sin, making eternal life available to all who will believe. Now just take a moment and think about that. Think about what lies before him the next day. And he knows what it is. He knows what's going to happen. And he takes this time to pray to the Father, communicating back and forth just him and the Father, but then also interceding for his disciples and for us. For all that lay before him, he takes the time to pray for them and pray for us. I find that just fascinating. So in our resume writing, after our objectives, we typically move into our background, our experience, our accomplishments, don't we? We summarize our job history, our schooling, what we did, how we did it. But none of us could really say, uh, there was an entire book written specifically about me. <laughs> Jesus can't. Jesus could walk in with the Word of God and say, here's my spiritual resume, couldn't he? He could drop that off. And we are glad that we have that. We rejoice that we have that because of all of the things that it shows us about the Lord and all of it shows about us and our relationship with Him. So we have here in the remaining verses, verses 4 through 26 of this chapter, 
a long list of Jesus' background, his experience, his accomplishments. It's not a comprehensive list. It's only the things that he mentions in this prayer, but it's a pretty good list. It does summarize, summarize what he's done. So now we have the background, experience, and accomplishments part of this resume. Jesus now summarizes these things to the Father. He's sharing with the Father what the Father already knows anyway. But this is a really good lesson for us, really good for us to take a look at these things. Starting with verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So two things right away mentioned there in verse 4, right? What are they? I've glorified you on the earth, and I've finished the work. Now, he's saying this from the perspective of knowing that what? There's still something to do. There's still something that he's going to be taking care of the next day. But in the Old Testament, we see he set his face like flint. He was focused from the time that he came on this earth. He was focused moving forward constantly towards the cross. And it's going to happen this next day. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work. Verse 6, we see, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. I have manifested your name. And everything that Jesus did pointed to the Father, didn't it? Did Jesus himself ever put him in the place of just taking all the credit? It's all about me. It's everything that I do. You don't even have to pay any attention to the Father. I'm on the scene now. Just forget about God altogether. Forget about all those commandments and everything that he came up with. Never. He was always in a place of glorifying the Father. So he was always in a place of manifesting the Father's name before all these guys. So also in verse 8, we see, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So I have given them your words. Jesus was always in a place of representing the Father correctly. Never, any circumstance, did Jesus ever misrepresent God, did he? We know from history that there were those that did, David and Moses. Moses strikes the rock out of anger to bring forth water. God wasn't angry at the people. He misrepresented God in that. It's a statement that we can relate to, right? Misrepresenting God. <laughs> we do that fairly regular. Uh, when we recognize it and when we don't, even when we're trying to help someone, sometimes we still mess, misrepresent God. Actually, mess represent God sounds better, doesn't it? We create a mess sometimes when we try to do that. So Jesus never misrepresented God. Never. He gave them your words, it says. So everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus said was in a complete agreement with God's words, everything that God has spoken up to that point. Also in verse 9, I pray for them. That one I find especially important for all of us to know that Jesus 
prayed for his disciples. We're going to see that as we move on through this. He prayed for us in this prayer as well. And he continues to pray for us, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us regularly. I pray for them. Verse 12, I kept them in your name. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Do you see this list starting to build of his background, his accomplishments, these things? I have, I have, I have. See this pattern that's going on in this prayer? And you, you put yourself in a place where you go, God knows all these things. Why is Jesus saying all these things if God already knows them? I think it's as a statement of fact before the Father, I've completed the work, I've done these things. But again, who was sitting there? I believe the disciples were right there beside him, hearing all these things. As he summarizes to the Father what he's done, they hear that summary as well. And it had to be very encouraging, I would think. So it's encouraging to us, is it not? So it had to be to them. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I have given them your word. Now, Jesus Christ himself is the word. He's given himself to them. Everything that he has communicated with them would be considered his word, God's word, your word. So he's communicated all these things to them. I have given them your word. Then also in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, these guys would have already experienced this, right? Jesus has used them in ministry during this three years of his ministry on earth. He's involved these guys in different aspects of the ministry, even sending them out at times. So I've sent them into the world already. I will be sending them again, but I have sent them into the world. Verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So it's a sanctifying work that's ongoing. Jesus, while He was with them physically, was sanctifying them by the way that He ministered to them, talked to them, and all those things. But His sanctifying work is going to continue after the cross through the Holy Spirit, right? we know that that sanctifying work is going to, going to happen. We talked a couple weeks ago that there's a difference there. Salvation is an event. Salvation is a point in time that you can say, at this point in time, I accepted the Lord. At that point in time, I turned my life over to the Lord. That was an event. That salvation, sanctification then happens from that time on, right? As He continues to work in us, grow us, build us, equip us, all the things that He does uh, for us, it's a sanctifying work that's an ongoing work that he continues. I've sanctified them. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word. I pray for those who will believe. That's us, guys. Jesus is praying now for those who will believe. Is this the first time that he's done it? I don't think so. I think that a lot, most everything that we see in this prayer 
he's prayed about before in regards to the disciples and, and for us. That's the master plan, isn't it? God's plan for redemption of the world, for the salvation of mankind. That's why God put this whole plan into place and sent his son. So it's obvious that he would be praying for us even back then. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I gave them the glory you gave me. Now when I first read that and started to look at it, it was just almost, you know, one of those moments because, wow, we are glorified because of what He done, what He has done, what, what He did for us. We're glorified in that when we accept what He did for us, right? But what gets me about that verse, if you look at it a little closer, that they may be one just as we are one. That we become, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we become one with the Father as well. And I know we know that. It's a statement we've probably all heard many times over the years. We've been taught that. We know that. We understand it for the most part. But when you really look at being one with the Father, as Jesus is one with the Father, that's a heavy thing. It just kind of steps up the game somewhat, doesn't it? <laughs> Again, we're going to look at these things more next week. But moving on to verse 23. In them... I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So I have done these things that the world may know, and I have loved them as you loved me. So when we think about that relationship between the Father and the Son and the love that the Father has for the Son, the Son loves us in that same way, that perfect love. Hard for us to gra grasp perfect love. Uh, certainly we know definition of it, but yet to actually know and work out that in our lives, that's kind of tough. And, but to know that the Son loves us with a perfect love as the Father loves the Son with a perfect love, it's great. But I, it also says, I've done these things that the world may know. And I forgot to say it at the beginning of the message. That's, that's the the title of the message today, that the world may know. Because that's what this whole thing is about. That's what this whole thing is for, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, is the command that he gives us. And so, why? That the world may know. That we spread this message that we know, that God has impressed upon us and taught us, and we spread that to all those that we come into contact with. That the world may know what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world, so that they may be where I am. We've looked at that in the past couple of weeks as well. He goes to prepare a place for us, right? He wants us to be where He is, which is in heaven. And He's provided the way for us to get there. So in that, it's a desire, as we see from the Word, but we also know that it's a fact, it's a promise of what's going to take place by having a relationship 
with Jesus Christ, we will be with Him. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have known you. Nobody knows the Father like the Son, right? But He wants us to. He wants to work in us. He's provided us His Word so that we might have relationship with the Father such that He does. Verse 26, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. I have declared to them your name. So this list of things that we have, I've glorified you on the earth, I've finished the work, I've manifested your name, I've given them your words, I pray for them, I kept them in your name, I have given them your word, I have sent them into the world, I have sanctified them. I pray for those who will believe. I gave them the glory you gave me. I have done these things that the world may know. I have loved them as you loved me. I desire that they will be where I am. I have known you. I have declared to them your name. That's quite an impressive list, isn't it? It's a very impressive resume, if you will, of what Christ has done on our behalf. Again, we're going to look at all of this deeper next week, but in all of this, we have Jesus praying to the Father for and about Himself. Just imagine being one of the disciples, sitting there listening to all of this, especially when He moves into praying for them directly, as we see in the text, and then later on for us as well. Jesus praying for the ones who will believe because of His disciples. I did a little exercise this week with this chapter to hopefully better determine the real focus here. As I saw, it wasn't necessarily a necessary step, but I was just curious. How many times does Jesus refer to Himself personally in this prayer? How many times does He refer to the Father personally? In this text, in this prayer, Jesus refers to Himself personally as I, myself, or me, total of 54 times. Now we all have ran across me monsters in our lives, haven't we? People that love to talk about themselves, I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. <sighs> kind of grates on you after a while. Jesus can pull that off. <laughs> Just, I'm fine with Jesus doing that. So 54 times in this passage, he refers to himself personally as I, myself, or me. He refers to God personally as you or yourself 38 times. If you're one that likes to highlight and you go through there, I had to count them several times because there were so many eyes in there, uh, it was easy to lose track. But you or yourself, referring to God 38 times. So at first glance and in highlighting those words, it would appear that the focus or the main theme here is just the conversation between those two, right? That, that's what it would seem like. There's a lot of I's and U's going on. That was looking at it from a personal standpoint. But what about the possessive? Taking a step further, in relation to himself, Jesus used the words my and mine four times. And in relation to the Father, he used the word your and yours 14 times. Okay. In describing himself and the Father, we see in there together, he used the words we and us a 
total of three times. So, so in totality, in these 26 verses, Jesus refers to himself and the Father in all word forms a total of 113 times in 26 verses. There's definitely a focus on Jesus and the Father here, isn't there? However, I wasn't done. <laughs> Another quick count, he refers to others. The men, their, they, those, them, these, themselves, a total of 45 times, which is a pretty impressive number too, right? He's talking about somebody else other than just him and the Father. So you're probably wondering, why, Jim, why? <laughs> why do that? Why do all the counting? Why go, th go through all that? For what purpose were you really doing all of that? Uh, well, some of you may know this kind of thing is what one does when they're doing or using the inductive Bible study method. Maybe some of you have heard of that. You're looking for those kinds of things. Sometimes you go through all of that and it was just kind of like, okay, it was a great exercise. There's a lot of focus on Jesus and the Father here. Other times you find something out. You're trying to glean all you can from the text in context, not just verse by verse, but by word by word. So we know that here we have the real Lord's Prayer. At the time of intimate fellowship with the Father, Jesus is communicating with the Father what has been accomplished so far. It's a summary of Jesus' spiritual resume so far in His ministry, His, his calling. And in all of this, all the things we listed in the background, the experience, and the accomplishments, a total of 16 things there for our benefit. Remember, the disciples are sitting there hearing all these things. Jesus is saying, these are the things that I've done. All the things that Jesus needed to do on our behalf. The Father was glorified in all these things. Jesus said, I finished the work that the Father gave me to do. Was it for His benefit? He did it all to glorify the Father and to make eternal life available to us, like we saw in the first two verses. He finished the work that the Father gave him to do, except for one thing. Verse 5 says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the glory that he, Jesus, laid aside to be born, to serve, to suffer, and to die all for us. He had the glory with the Father before all this took place, didn't he? He's going to return to the Father, being glorified. Again, the necessary steps for Him to be glorified again are going to begin the next day as He goes to the cross for His disciples and for us. It's His resume of faithfulness. We're going to look more next week how that applies to the disciples and how it applies to us. Amen?